Welcome to another episode of The Jazz Scene, giving you an in-depth look at the music and stories of the music community here in Columbus. The Jazz Scene is presented by the Jazz Arts Group, America's oldest nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing the art of jazz through performance and education. My name is Zach Comston, Director of Education and Community Engagement here at Jazz Arts Group and a professional musician living here in Columbus. So today we're here joined by Becky Ogden, the jazz lady and the uh, the teacher extraordinaire, uh, owner of uh, the Columbus Music Hall for many years after having taught for many years and now running bungalow jazz concerts in your house for a number of years um, and a gazillion different titles. First of all, thanks for joining us today. Um, and I thought I would start uh, at the very beginning. So a lot of people know you as, not the very beginning, but a lot of people know you as um, either a teacher which is your your entire career, even to now, um, or the jazz lady uh, being a venue owner and operator. Um, but I want to kind of start at the point where you got into music. So you uh, must have been in band at an early age, right? I was, and my very best friend, in from the time we were three or four years old, his mom and dad were my music teachers. So his dad was my band director, and his mom who had performed on vaudeville in an all-girl orchestra, was my saxophone teacher. And so they were all about music as entertainment more than music as uh, not... Pedagogy. Yeah, like, yeah. Not, not the intellectual side. Yeah. It was like always fun. So there was always something fun going on at their house around their piano with instruments or at my house around the piano with people singing. I mean, it was just we kind of grew up in that musical tradition. Uh, I remember a, a dad of somebody who, who played barroom piano. I used to sit at the piano and watch him and try to figure out what his hands were doing at the piano. Um, and so I learned a piano style of accompaniment that accommodated my lack of technique. And I still use that style of accompaniment today. To, um, to get like a basic song across yeah, with like your kids. Yeah, just like a oompa kind of, yeah, yeah. just the chord changes. You know. And that was from watching a that guy? Was that was from watching both the band director who played piano and, and this old guy who played barroom piano. Um, and did they ever explain it to you or no, did you just, just have to I figure it out? I just would sit at the piano with them and then somehow, then we used to, we, from the time I was probably in seventh grade, we played little community dances, but part of that time was spent there was round dancing and then there was square dancing. And so on the square dancing part, I played the piano. You know, you could just fall asleep playing, you know, three chords at the piano while somebody was calling a square dance. And so that was kind of the heritage I grew up with. And you grew up in rural Ohio. Well, my town was a little town, but we wouldn't call it rural. It well, was um, what would be the difference? of the Ohio art, the Etch-a-Sketch. It, it, oh. it was a pretty well-to-do town. My dad was school superintendent. My what was the name was of that teacher. town? Bryan, Ohio. So your parents were educators? My parents were educators. It's also the home of the Dum Dum, so the oh. Spangler Candy Company mm -hmm. and, and uh, Candy Cane. So there was a, the, those were all my, the kids of all those families were my contemporaries. Right. So. And your parents, you said your father was a superintendent? My dad was a school superintendent. My mom was a third grade teacher and a good piano player and always accompanied me at um, contest. So. And so when you started getting into music, was it pretty quickly that you knew that being an educator was probably... No, not, not a music educator. That was an accident. 
Tell me about so, how, how did that happen? Well, I, when I was a senior in high school, I was I, probably the year I graduated with summer, and my dad, I think, was interviewing teachers, and somebody came to our house, this guy, this man who I don't remember, said, well, what are you going to study in college? Where are you going to school? Ohio State. What are you going to study? I'm going to be in elementary education. He looked at me and said, what do you really want to do? <laughs> and I said, music. And that that comment changed my life. And your, I, was your dad in the room for this? No, I was alone with this man. I don't know what that was all about. But oh, interesting. Anyway, was a guy. You this know, was somebody guy. that was coming to your father's school? I have no idea who he was, actually. But it was a stranger. And so when I went to Ohio State that fall, I re-registered everything. I auditioned. So that conversation saxophone. planted the seed of like, planted the seed. you were happy. able to be honest about like music education more specifically. And he must have said, well, then that's what you should do or something. Right. And I, I switched majors when I got to Ohio State. Pretty quickly, September, like right at the September. beginning. Yeah, and I auditioned and I was a saxophone player and a good one Yeah. at that time. Yeah. But, uh, and I had a student had preceded me at Ohio State who was a saxophone major from my hometown, and he fed me all of the material he was playing gotcha. uh, in college. So I'd already played all of the solos that, as I was coming through, up through yeah. high school. And so when you so got thank goodness, yeah, I that's was an amazing ended story. Up in music and not in elementary education. How did your parents feel when you decided on music education? Did that change their opinion at all? I don't okay. remember. Anybody caring? I, everybody went to bat for me and supported it. And, and you yeah. said that at the time it wasn't uncommon for females. This would be the late fifties. Fifty-eight. I graduated from high school, so yeah, there were there were lots of girls in going to music college school. and going to college mm -hmm. and music school. Mm -hmm. So you weren't oh, you weren't. It was not even un, uncommon for females not to uncommon. be studying music. Um, so you started at Ohio State, and then you switched right at the beginning to music. And so that puts you on, like, the playing saxophone and taking lessons and doing that in addition to your studies, education studies? Well, doing it was like just the, the music track, yeah. It was music education. But you had to do juries and uh, uh, recitals. Oh, yeah, the and, whole. Mm -hmm. and so you kept the saxophone going at the collegiate level, the same as a, a performance major probably for a lot of it. Right, studying wise, yeah. And, yeah, and private lessons. Mm -hmm. And so, from 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 all that time we just sort of covered, was was jazz ever ever sort of specifically called out as no, what you were my doing? My brother listened to Stan Canton and my saxophone teacher, who is not the vaudeville lady. Right. My high school saxophone teacher. When we drove to Columbus, we had to hold our breath as we drove through Kenton, Ohio, in honor of Stan. <laughs> and if there was a if there was a train, we were screwed. Uh. <laughs> so that's my big Stan Kenton thing. But otherwise, you had to hold your breath in Kenton, Ohio, in reverence from, to Stan Kenton. Correct. Because <laughs> your brother. Because of my saxophone teacher. Oh, you're because of your saxophone yeah. teacher. And what would happen if you couldn't hold your breath? I guess we. Did the Stop band for ice cream? The, <laughs> the Kenton band lost a gig every time you yeah, couldn't. Yeah, so you Kenton couldn't. <laughs> was really the only jazz that I heard my brother and, mm. and uh, also this guy played bebop. He was a big bebop guy, and I would go. I had a Bugs Bauer bebop uh, <laughs> book, and so I went on some gigs with them, and I would must have. I don't know what I did. What did I that? What did that bebop? bebop? I had, I was had, it written bebop lines? It was written bebop. I still have the books, I think. Oh, I would love to see that. I'll bring them to you. Bugs Bauer Bugs bebop Bauer book. Bebop. 
But I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know Miles Davis or any of those names were just. And then, of course, at Ohio State, there was no jazz. Right. So you you okay? Right. So you went to Ohio State in the early fifties or late fifties, early sixties. Fifty-eight to sixty-two. Yep. And so that was not yet at the time where they had that band rehearsing down in the basement of. Well, but Tom Battenberg's a year younger than me, and so something was going on. Okay. So Tom got through, and I, I we should have a separate conversation with Tom. He was going through school on the trumpet track classical trumpet right at the same time i was doing classical set we actually played solos on the same concert band concert tour and look at him and look at me right as so, a performer so for know. the people that are that don't know tom tom is the the principal trumpet uh trumpetist with the columbus symphony and pro musica chamber orchestra who just retired just after retired 50 years of playing trumpet and was the first jazz studies Director, you know, jazz band director at Ohio State when they sort of codified their program. Right. So I was, you know, it was on the cusp. Girls, girls didn't play jazz. I think they did, but no girls I knew played jazz. Gotcha. So you went through um, music education at Ohio State, and uh, on your way through your degree, and then you got your first teaching job in Columbus City Schools. It was Mifflin. Oh, that was its own school district. It was its own school district. And then when they went into Columbus, I got out and went uh, to Worthington. Gotcha. So I was seven years in Mifflin, and then the rest of my teaching career was in Worthington. And so, and, and the other thing is that you had had children at the, right at the beginning of your teaching career. Yes. Which probably was extremely difficult to juggle. Well, like I said, I was young and dominant. Who knew? I didn't know how hard it was. Right. So, it was so it's all hindsight. All hindsight. They, I probably wasn't a very good mother. You can ask them, and they'll probably. Agree. Hey, they still love you. They still. I've I've met them, and they so, all are great people. I just met your great, great niece. My great. My, my granddaughter and my great granddaughter were at PBJ and Jazz on yep. Saturday. Yep. Mm-hmm. Very nice people. Um, so when you started your career, um, you started teaching elementary music. I actually taught fourth grade for two years, and then when the fourth grade music, fourth grade classroom. Oh, a core. I had everything. I had it retrained because there were not there were very few music elementary music jobs in those days. I don't think Columbus had elementary music at that time. They had a few music teachers, but there they were the jobs were scarce. So I re I did a extra work and and got my general education general education stuff. degree. And so, so at that time, was music taught in the classroom, like in the core classroom, as a component of there your regular? There was a music teacher in Mifflin because I ended up taking her place. Uh, I think they came to the classroom. I don't think there was a music room. Yeah, gotcha. and they taught out of the book. You know. And you said you did that for two years, teaching fourth grade general classroom, before going to music at Mifflin. At Mifflin. And you, took and you really didn't have any guidance, and you didn't have to know anything, and you right. just did. You, I just, you know, you kind of did what was natural. And so when you took the music job, it would have been all elementary at that point? All elementary, two yeah. elementary schools. Mm-hmm. So now you're an elementary general music teacher. What about your upbringing were you implementing into your teaching? Because you never struck me as somebody that, that has, like, they taught me this in music education class, and I teach by the this method and that method. Yeah, well, I think I probably it's still true today. You just you don't really learn to teach until you teach. Right. Though, yeah, that, well, 
the Kodai and ORF programs, I think, are important. Are important. Yeah. But for you at that time, were you taking just what you experienced in your upbringing, both out, in and outside of school? Yeah, but just, there were also there were music books like Silver Burdett had a music book. It's still my favorite book, and it was full of great folk tunes. Mm. So it, the music teaching was really a folk, traditional American folk, and some international folk music um, as a guide. And so you were putting on in school full student body concerts and things and all the all the classes would come and listen to the other classes i remember those elementary uh, uh classes where you'd shuffle the all the first grade onto the stage and right, off and then the second right. so that we, was you do things like that and you had concerts for parents yeah and, and then in the late at the end of the Mif mifflin years we would have bomb scares all the time so um, so we're talking 68 70. Yeah. and so we spent a lot of time outside waiting for the school to be cleared. And I did a lot of large group music at that time. That was when I got to be with my guitar, really good at manipulating the whole school at the same time <laughs> <laughs> and keeping them entertained while the bomb scare was going on. So how, how real were those bomb scares? That so we, we Just a little bit ago before this, we were talking about how involved, that, that was kind of the Vietnam yeah. era. But, I, but did people treat them as practice or no, these were they? No, this was a bomb scare. And so when it a bomb scare would happen, people would have to like go into the basement or get we just, into we the... We had to go outside. You had Must to have go, been nice weather. Right. You didn't hide. You just sort of went outside. Until the police cleared the school. And so the bomb scare, what, what would they tell you as a teacher at the time? What were they saying to you about what the scare was? Were they, were they feeding you... Truthful information or being vague? I or? don't know. You know, it's just wow. something I hadn't thought about for a long time. That, that's where I really got my chops for large group right. manipulation. So there's a silver lining in the bomb scare and thing. The bomb that, scare. And now, obviously, with Jazz Arts Group, you're doing the full, uh, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade all at once. And, you know, you've been doing that now for a I've long time. I've been doing that since, since the bomb scares. And yeah. the PBJ and Jazz concerts we do are similar. It's like we've got big bodies of people and we're going to entertain everybody at once. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so then you go to Worthington about seven years in, you go to Colonial Hills. I was at Colonial Hills for the 23 years till I retired mm -hmm. and a great little, well, I was always at there four days a week and somewhere else one day. Somewhere else in, the, in, the, in that in district. district. Mm -hmm. And was that another elementary or did you only do elementary only at that did job? elementary there. And um, so at that time, as you're developing, you know, as a, as a career educator, um, that actually sort of coincided with Jazz Arts Group and Ray Eubanks starting uh, the concerts with the Jazz Arts Group over at Battelle, well, first at Capitol, and then over at Battelle. Obviously, Capitol and OSU in the, in the early 70s now have jazz programs. Was the jazz thing uh, anywhere influencing you at that time? No. The middle no, of your career? because the materials I used were, like I said, a pretty American folk tradition oriented, and then I um, became acquainted with a folk singer, and that's where we clog danced and had dulcimers, and I had a huge <laughs> folk program going wow. on there, and which Gretchen continues to right, this day. Right, right. Um, and so while you're at Worthington. Um, Sort of toward the maybe two-thirds point in your career, you opened the, the Columbus Music Hall, which is in the old firehouse building on Parsons and Broad, 
sort of Parsons and Oak would that yeah, be? Yeah, 84. So it's kind of late in my career. Yeah. Late in your career. And so why was that a jazz thing you did or is it just no. a How did the music no. hall start? Oh, well, that's too long, David. Well, give me the here. give me the I married reason. a guy named John Ogden and he always wanted a firehouse and he bought the firehouse and paid cash for it, which I didn't know you could do, and then <laughs> we struggled for the 4 years to turn it into something. And he Was the it, original intent to be a, a, no. a venue for music? <laughs> no, we had no intent. <laughs> the intent was for me to live there, and, the, and he called it Columbus Music Hall because he was a pilot, and CMH were the call letters at Port Columbus, and CMH was the Columbus Music Hall, CMH, and that's how remote. Even before he had planned on doing music at the Columbus Music Hall. He, nobody planned on doing music at the Columbus Music Hall. Had so been. what a curious name to name something if you're not even going to. So when did concerts start at the Music Hall? One more accident <laughs> in my life. These but, are amazing accidents. And we, did, we, ended up, we did weddings and parties, but then somebody, I don't know. I don't know. I I was there a band that came to you and said, hey, like, why don't we perform here? Well, this is a great room. Well, eventually Todd Stoll brought his... Uh, jazz to go. No, yeah, jazz to go, and they did the Ellington Nutcracker. Ah. Uh. And Vaughn saw that and said, hmm, maybe my band could perform there. And that's what started the big band. And then that was my relationship to uh, jazz musicians. Jazz musicians. Did you know Ray Eubanks, Jag founder, he, before... Well, all yeah, of that? He's Tom Battenberg's age. I oh, right. But he was at Capitol. Oh, he yeah. went to OSU. He, he started teaching I at Capitol. I was in school with him at OSU. Interesting. And so it's even though you had all these sort of jazz uh, pioneers in Columbus, you sort of stayed outside that fray for a long time. Yeah, because I was a little old lady mother. Not little. I wasn't old then. You've never been old. And I, and I ran a folk festival in Worthington for several years. I was really interested in, in Ohio traditional music and interviewing and working with uh, rural music traditions. Right. And, Which and, actually, and international, too. So. Right. Which actually share a lot, of, a lot of common threads in terms of, like, really using your ears and really sort of grabbing hold of this music and, be, and, and to your initial point, Music as sort of entertainment. As entertainment, but it really accommodated my, I know three chords on the guitar. <laughs> you made the most <laughs> out of what you had. My functional right. guitar playing it was, it was very nice for traditional American music. So you opened the music hall, not as a music hall, in 1988. Eight. Six. Eight. 88. And you operated it as sort of a venue for private events, and then... Um, and I had other people running it at that time. Running it as an event space? As an event space. Okay. I was in and out, and I lived there. And you lived there. I lived there. Is, um, there's a house adjacent to it. Did you live there or in the actual I firehouse? I lived in, upstairs in the music hall through all the construction. Gotcha. Um, and so at the time, how big of a project was it to, I mean, you must have thought, like, why do you want to own a firehouse? <laughs> why do you want to well, own I a firehouse? I was, right. it was, I just became part of the project. Yeah, yeah. By well, marriage. the awesome thing about that, and I was really lucky that I came to uh, Columbus in 2006 for, to start college, and that was the last sort of like two or three two or years, three years yeah. of the music hall. So I got to see Vaughn's band there, a bunch of small group jazz there, and to me there hasn't been a venue as good or like it since in terms of the acoustics and the feel, the atmosphere inside of the space. So you start doing jazz, and Vaughn's band started 
I guess in the mid to late 90s. They were there for 12 years, and I don't know when that. So that would then. go back into the, I think, early 90s, if I recall. Um, and then so so at that time, you're starting to get around a little bit more jazz music. Um, did Yumbambe, Yumbambe was a salsa when band I that. When I got a liquor license in Yumbambe, Eric decided, yeah, we he did every Tuesday night there once we had the liquor license. And that that was really fun. That yeah. worked really well. And they had a weekly sort of residency mm-hmm. there. And so you said that the first four or five years were, were tough because it's like, what are we going to do with the space and getting it off the ground? Well, we did the weddings and parties until finally one summer I decided I could not face one more wedding, <laughs> right. one more bride. So we, I, that was when I started thinking about selling it. And then the, uh, the next accident was my grandson, Andrew, said, hey, Grandma, let's just make it a jazz club. And I went, okay. So, you <laughs> so the had... last five years, we pretty much stopped doing weddings and we shot ourselves in the foot several times by trying to have a jazz club. And you had a lot of jazz musicians' weddings at the, right. at the firehouse. Right. I've known, like, I know Mark Donovan. Mark Donovan. Was one that had uh, his Ryan there. Hamilton. Ryan Hamilton. Rob Maccabee's first wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was actually, it's kind of a lot of happy accidents here at yeah. the Columbus Music Hall. And so you run, what was the first turning point at the Music Hall where you felt like, okay, like, this thing is, is, is worth doing i mean you said the first few years were a struggle was there a turning point where it was like okay this is all right well yeah presenting was great and yeah but all but because it's jazz it's always hard right so because and it's then, well then there was uh, mark martin put his american school of double bass he was principal bass with the columbus symphony mm-hmm. orchestra and he started the american school of double bass with kind of his partner Charlie Rath, mm-hmm. who was very involved with Wendy's. With well, he was the marketing director of he Wendy's. He designed Where's the Beef. He, dis- but when thing. he retired from Wendy's, he came to the office with me. At he retired to the music hall, and had he had been on the board and maybe president at of the jazz board of Jazz Arts Group. So he started presenting jazz, and that's that was the real hardcore jazz when he started doing a series with Mark Flugey. Called and Firehouse Jazz, right? I don't I think. know what they called it. Yeah, but but that was the he was the one that brought in really great outside artists uh, and found the money and did the presenting and under Mark's uh, directorship. Then, when you had the 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 music hall, did you know that you had sort of a special room? Did it feel, were people telling you that it sounded great, that it felt great? We had no idea. That was an accident. And the piano, the piano's really the link. Yeah. The old Mason Hamlin piano that's at my home now was the reason that music could happen there. Right. So. Right. And so the whole time you had the firehouse, which was from 88 to 2008, 20 years, 21 years. you're teaching for like at least half of that time, right? Or, well, the first, at least the first several years of that time, right? Full time still. I taught still. till 90, 1993, I think, right. is when I really retired from the first round of teaching. Right. And so that is a great segue because you retired in 1993, you know, with your normal state teacher's retirement, which it was like fairly like right at the beginning of your retirement age, right? Well, I was really young because I started teaching so early. So okay. I was young. Yeah. Yeah, and but then the next year, you got into teaching a little bit with Capital University, 
uh, doing some uh, education methods. I did methods courses at Capitol. I would fill in for people, and then I did the Marion, OSU Marion, for maybe 10 years or so. Um, and did you, so then you got into a little bit of higher ed. Did you take, looks like you maybe took some time off before you got back into the classroom to teach. Did you? Well, I, it, during my teaching career in Worthington, I took a year, did a sabbatical for a mm -hmm. year to work on my PhD, which I didn't finish. I did everything, all but dissertation. So I taught that year I was a TA at Ohio State, and that kind of started my college elementary education, elementary music teaching chops. Yep, yep. And so, and then pretty quickly you get into sort of in post-retirement, if you could call it that, back into teaching through sort of the Montessori schools and things like that. Right. So you really didn't take any time off. You know, you didn't skip a, an academic year. I did, I think, because okay. I ran the music hall for a little while. Okay. Um, and then that's where the PBJ started. Right. So PBJ and Jazz started actually at the firehouse. That was right. your own creation. Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? Because prior to Jazz, I presented a lot of bluegrass and um, traditional Indian music and um, folk singers, mm -hmm. uh, Bill Staines, people like that. And I thought, well, if they were going to do an evening concert, why couldn't they do a 6 o'clock concert for kids and families? And that's kind of dinner time. So yeah. that's how the PBJ and, and PBJ and concerts, whatever yeah. they were, right. PBJ concerts got started because the kids needed a snack. And then as traffic patterns changed in, all, in Columbus, that be, 6 o'clock became a really hard time. And as the jazz started up at the music hall, then I started Saturday morning PBJs. Right. And that was how that. And jazz. so you started doing these family concerts. Was that in part made possible because you understood going all the way back to the bomb scares, you know, how to entertain not just adults and how to sort of fuse this American folk music or even even international folk music and then jazz into, was there a certain thing where you were like, we need to entertain the kids well, I just and thought fuse they it together. a connection to hear live music of all kinds. Right. And that's still, I'm the connector. I think that's my role now is to connect musicians with kids. Um, and sometimes you write materials. I did that for the symphony for forever. I've been writing their curriculum materials for their kitty concerts. But the importance of a family being able to bring children <laughs> to hear live music, um, is, was rare in Columbus yeah. at that time. And so you had kind of a unique perspective being a venue owner and a career, career educator to make that happen. Right. And it seems like a lot of people instigating you into trying things, <laughs> seems like, so far. So far. But you mentioned something that was, that was uh, another important thing. So you started writing curriculum for arts organizations. First, the symphony? For the symphony, I wrote with Tim Gerber. He was at Ohio State. We, he was a first-year professor at the same time I was doing my sabbatical and we just connected mm -hmm. and we were both on the symphony education committee with Al Berry uh, and other people but anyway we he was the one that instigated the the writing this curriculum for uh, docents to take out materials that they could really use that they didn't have to know to how right. to be a teacher or about the symphonic material but we had a we did a booklet so the the JAG booklet now is Right. So then, then Ray Eubanks came to you and asked you to do the same thing, essentially, for the Columbus Jazz Orchestra. Right. And, and I think that would have been the early 2000s. 
that we started doing the All That Jazz concert. So I wrote that pre-concert curriculum for teachers to use so that because they're kids, if the kids are familiar with what they are going to hear at a concert, they're they're more likely to enjoy it. Yep. And do you feel that that um, it also helps the the teachers teach the content by coming to the concert and seeing it tied together with a booklet? You know, does it deepen the way that a teacher can deliver on the on well, the? Well, they're probably in the same predicament that I am, and they're more church-oriented musicians, classical musicians. The, uh, elementary teachers are not typically jazz musicians. Right. Right. So, their jazz, their vocabulary for jazz. Is probably limited and you've got to make it quick and clear and fast for them they need to be able to teach from that book without studying anything right. they just right. be able that's the goal is that the materials are so simple that they can so then teach. so then sort of taking that point uh, and looking at your whole career overall seems like that was sort of something that you got early on as a kid that sense of how do we make this uh, not just palatable, but uh, usable. Like, how can I give you information that matters instead of sort of... Yeah, well, to make it accessible. Yeah, yep. And then, um, so that so how did you feel like, so you put a full career in teaching in the, in, in the, you know, every day for the whole school year. How did you feel like teaching uh, elementary music changed maybe from beginning to end? Was there anything well, that was a big th- evolution? Yeah, it be, it, you know, the socially incorrect... Um, events needed to be discontinued um, Halloween, Christmas but when I was still at Colonial Hills I stopped doing anything that referred to Christmas mm-hmm. because that was culturally incorrect mm-hmm. but it was at, and that at that time it was as culturally incorrect to not do Christmas right so you were caught in the I crossfire in the middle, but I yeah. stopped doing Christmas programs quite a while before I stopped stop teaching what about teaching itself was there anything that changed in what you had to deliver as as you went through your career there because you also taught during sort of like some technology booms and things too was there anything about that pre-technology yeah i was yeah there was it was all acoustic and you had well of course i had records right and then you had tapes which you couldn't find anything on the tape um so Probably by the time I had CDs, probably at the end yep. of my teaching. Yep. What about computers? Did you get in on any computer music making? I bought my f- no. I bought my first Mac in 1984. Okay, that's right when the Macintosh was it made, was first, so it was right it on was the edge. When it was first introduced, and I had a what, my Mac 520. Yeah. And that was so that, but that is what really allowed me to create my, my own materials. So you used it more outside of the classroom, but to design the the ideas and the curriculum. I did our first symphony book on my Mac. And one thing that I've heard, figures. and I've heard you say this too, um, when when I don't know whether it was Ray or whether it was the symphony came to you, um, the first edition of I think the Jag book, the the Jazz Arts Group's fourth grade book came out. It was like super clean like well produced and you said like no that's 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 too nice for these kids it needs to just be on paper to where they can color on it and is that true i that, don't remember that i think ray need, told me that it's a throwaway book it needs yeah. to be used and thrown away or written on or yep mm-hmm. yep um okay so this is extremely fascinating to me because of all these happy accidents as you call them but i don't think they're accidents i think you kind of have always had to me a sense of what needed to be done 
in, in the education realm to get across to the most people? I'm not an intellectual. I always right. call myself a junk musician, and I gave him <laughs> kind of a perspective of not being tied into being perfect all the time. So you just you could just let the rough edges roll right. and whatever happened. And the kids that I taught, nobody ever knew they couldn't sing. They didn't know if they, you know, my choir didn't reflect, uh, what do I want to say? Anybody could sing. Anybody right. could be, Anybody could participate. Right. It's kind of music for all. That's what general music should be. And that's what going to the symphony or going to a jazz concert should be. You shouldn't have to know anything or feel intimidated by the the process. Right. And so then maybe would it be safe to say that you're not uh, really into a lot of the competitive music making in education, the competitions and the various things? There's a place for that. But yeah. the, the beauty of elementary education is you throw all this stuff out and then and maybe they pick it up and maybe they don't. Maybe yeah. they, you know, I don't have any kids that I had in school who are famous musicians. But I have many, many students, ex-students, who participate in music at some level. And probably have really fancy jobs and can give money to music making. Maybe. <laughs> um, so fast-forwarding a little bit, we've added a few other layers to even now in the last decade of your teaching. You teach at a Montessori school at least twice a week, two or twice three. Twice a week. That's just sort of, that was an accident, too. Somebody said, do you know anybody who wants to teach a couple days a week? Uh, at a Montessori school, music, and I said, oh, yeah, I would like to do that. And that's really fun for me because it gives me that I still get to touch students yeah. um, and have an effect and, yeah. and still develop materials and develop. But now it's very jazz-oriented right? more than folk. Yep. And um, and then also with Jazz Arts Group, you, you do our Jumpin' Jacks program, which is a pre-K program for two, three, and maybe some four-year-olds. Um, tell us about that and sort of how this idea sort of, how do you get that young of a person to understand, or is it even about having them understand jazz? You're trying to get jazz in their vocabulary, but we don't know what they're thinking because right. Carol Argero was the one through the academy. She wanted to have something for all ages, and so I was the touchstone for the preschool. And... My favorite story, as after four visits to a Head Start classroom, one little girl came to me and said, I just love Jasmine. <laughs> Jasmine. <laughs> Jasmine. Jasmine is the character in Aladdin. You yeah. know? So you don't know what, it, what right. they're picking up. But, but we're having a lot of fun, and they all know, you know, we're trying to make jazz a familiar concept for them. But it doesn't mean they know anything about jazz. So... Fast forward to 2000 and I think it might have been nine that the Columbus Music Hall closes finally. Why did it close? And because then you continued to do concerts in your home pretty much right away after that. Well, that was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so how is so? I just, the, yeah. the Columbus Music Hall, it, the, the actual facility was ready for some rehab, and, and I was, it was just over, I was over, in over my head, and I was running out of money to present there. Right, right. So I closed it and had an offer for the restaurant across the street to buy it, and so I took my bar and my piano home. Mm hmm. And, um, Terry Waldo, who's a ragtime piano player, lives from Columbus but lives in New York, had always done his birthday concert 
before, right before or after Thanksgiving Day at the music hall for several years. And he said, well, where am I going to do my birthday concert? And I said, well, maybe we could do it at my house. And we did his first birthday concert there, whatever that year was. And I think Mark Flugie actually played before that. He, Mark Flugie came along with the piano. And that so because you moved the same piano that was important to the firehouse, right? And you took that with you into your house, the which piano, my, the piano is really my connection to jazz. Right. And so, so then you start presenting uh, concerts in your house by way of that Terry Waldo concert and some others. First, what about the house? So, you, how long have you been living in that? I house bought now? it in like 1999, and so it's like an early 1900s big it's an arts and crafts bungalow but a big one yeah and so it's got the rooms that have the big wooden sliding doors that would separate them right right and um and how many people can you fit in your house we can seat about 50 and i've had 80 at night when matt wilson was there we had i think 90 people in that (laughs) (laughs) and some standing room and the funny maybe happy accident is that you ask any jazz musician in town it's probably one of the best rooms acoustically that there is that's an ax yeah that it by accident it has a the ugliest ceiling but it's some kind of acoustic tile or a tile ceiling and it just works it's just a nice jazz venue and so running venue yeah non-venue you've been running concerts out of that house for i guess the better part of a decade we're approaching seven, years, seven or well, eight years eight yeah um mm-hmm. any signs of of slowing down are you yes, gonna keep because i'm now the house is a uh, beyond my ability to take care of the house. And, yeah, it's and a huge the, house. And it's on an acre, so. Yep, yep. So if anybody wants to scoop that house up when you're done with it and turn it into a venue, or if anyone wants to scoop up the Columbus Music Hall and turn it into a venue, you know, there's all these op- opportunities for yeah. uh, acoustically awesome houses that you've stumbled across. Mm-hmm. So s- reflecting on this whole thing, um, obviously you've never really come out and said you're a jazz person but people have bestowed Jazz Lady on you. Right. I mean, and that's where other music now is not that much fun. Jazz is, for me personally, the most fun to listen to. I, I think I grew up in that period of when jazz was so hard to listen to and far out that it was not fun. And I think if I had been going to the Columbus Jazz Orchestra all those years, I would have picked up on it sooner. And so would you say that that teaching more and then getting into the music hall, you grew more of an affinity for the music than maybe you even had growing up? Right. You became more of a jazz listener as you got into more of these ventures. Right. Um, So you're, and you know this already, you're about to be awarded the Ray Eubanks Distinguished Service Award, which is an award that Jazz Arts Group started to basically thank somebody that's, that's taken jazz and done something amazing with it in the community. And in your case, whether it be early childhood education or presenting concerts or a mixture of both, um, that obviously is true with you. And I think anybody in Columbus would agree. Um, what does that make you think? I know you're not somebody that loves to talk, you know, wax on and on about yourself in that way, but, but do you feel like you've made a big impact through what you've done? Well, it's a pinprick in the big picture of what's out there. I do. Yeah, I do. But I, I, PBJ has had the PBJ and jazz is kind of a life of its own right now. Right. And I kind of am riding on that coattails, even though I started it, it's still, I'm kind of connected, but it's, it could stand alone easily without me. I'm, yeah, I'm proud of that. And so that's a sign of sort of the greater good that it causes 
or has caused and continues to do. Um, and but, actually, the thing about PBJ and jazz is that it not only connects the little kids, but it connects the parents right. with jazz. That's the beauty of, and, and real jazz. We were able to use real musicians playing real music, and that's real important to me, mm-hmm. to not have a contrived situation for kids and parents to to listen to music. It's kind of like cocktail hour at Sure. 10, 10, 10 in the morning. morning. Yeah, right. But on the flip side, it's it's caused the professionals to sort of think about how they present their music. You know, because you've seen the Hunter Tones and the New Basics Brass Band and all of these different groups that have... Uh, Those two groups have done, actually done a kid CD. Kids CDs. So that's that's great. Yeah, I think they think about it. Yeah, I'm kind of a little bit of a educator for the bands, too. Yep. And just as much as maybe people have instigated you into taking on projects, you're now sort of instigating whether you know it or not, instigating the musicians to sort of think about their craft differently. Um, and what are you hearing now from from either former students or teachers that you've had student teach? Because I know you've mentioned a few different, do you have people come back to you and mention anything about what they learned being in your class or being a student teacher under your sort of tutelage? Certainly you hear some stuff. I think they, it's just a general feeling that they they felt good about of course, I probably have enemies too, but <laughs> no. <laughs> that kid I threw the music stand across the floor <laughs> probably doesn't like me very much. But right. but I I do have kids that came up through my program who felt good about it when I taught elementary uh, the university courses. I tried to never make any student. They weren't music majors; they were elementary teachers. And I have some of those that come back to me and say, "We had so much fun in your class, and so I do stuff with music." Nobody was ever intimidated and had to sing alone or had to perform on the auto harp or play the recorder. Or the things that you could do it if you wanted to, but you just you it's, you wanted to just enjoy music and pass it on to the kids right and well at the time of this podcast you know this afternoon you have a jump for jazz assembly at an after school center on saturday we did the pbj uh you'll go back to your montessori school tomorrow and then we'll teach start preschool in the morning teach preschool and then we will start a round of uh uh, work with the Ohio Arts Council on creative aging. So that's sort of a mo- more recent new wrinkle. We've come to you and said, how do we adapt what you do for young people in sort of a senior living uh, environment and in, including some some uh, memory care issues, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia? What's been your experience with that? And do you feel like the your approach can correlate to, to late stay, late life folks in addition to I early? think you just, it's it's that cheerleader. You're just cheerleading. You're hoping that you know you're throwing something out there. You're trying to find something that they can relate to. That's been that was like one of the most fun things I did with jazz arts group was the aging people and to see them uh, their eyes brighten up even if their memory was starting to go. But you know that's going to be short lived. Those people are at the end of the jazz. Growing up listening to jazz. You know, in ten years, it'll have to be rock and roll. Right. So, so they are currently able to say that this was the music of their youth, and here's who I went and saw when I was a teenager. We we did dance to, to those big bands, but that those people are disappearing too. Well, we got to get to work then. We got to get to work. (laughs) Focus on the on the the boomers then that are that are. Well, and those people all were dance oriented, and that's the that is kind of the tragedy of jazz is that now it's an elite. uh, 
the, there's the audience versus the performer. The audience is not involved. There right. is no dancing. There is no goofing off, moving around, having fun. So their memory of listening to jazz, if they're younger than me, is listening. Right. Either they played it or they listened, but they didn't interact with it. And as you mentioned, there was there's a period, in your opinion, that, that the music was tough to listen to. It was tough to listen to. Unless too you... many notes, too many, you know, give me a tune that I can hum. Right. Like, Interesting. Well, I'm interested in seeing what you continue to do, and you've been the most important person for me to shadow and watch and observe. Um, and I think you deserve this award without question, whether you like to accept it or not. Uh, and incidentally, you'll be coming to and from because you're presenting a concert at your house on the day that, that you're night. also accepting the award. You're going to continue doing concerts until you have to quit, which is great. And above all, I have to say on air, thank you for what you've done for me and also for the myriads of generations in Columbus uh, uh, musicians and non-musicians to get this music into a wider group of people's lives uh, in a way that feels very real and, and fruitful. So thank you and thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Jazz Scene. We want to hear your feedback. Be sure to subscribe to The Jazz Scene on iTunes and give us your rating and comments. A big thanks to our music technology intern and recording engineer, Nick Fields. The theme music is by Columbus saxophonist Michael Cox, and the jazz scene is made possible by corporate, foundation, and individual contributors to the Jazz Arts Group. I'm Zach Compston, and we hope you join us again for another episode of The Jazz Scene.